even though the book that we're using for this class is the Christopher Ash book, what I've been using to drive the teaching is more than that Derek Thomas's commentary on Job, because I know many of you are reading the book, and I don't want to just rehash exactly what you're reading, and I think Derek Thomas's commentary on Job is brilliant. And so I've mostly been working us through that and kind of weaving it together with, with the Ash book, which is also excellent. But for this section, I'm, I'm going straight to the Ash book, and I'm, I'm doing that for two reasons. One is um, I, I want to teach from and to say and use the language of what you read if you're reading the Ash book. Because if there are questions, I, I don't want it to be because I'm bouncing back and forth between two different people's language who mean the same thing but maybe say it in a slightly different way. So I want to be able to take questions that way. And, and two is because I think this is the best chapter in Ash's book. As strange as that is to say, uh, it's not the most enjoyable chapter. <laughs> it's, it's just really, really well done. And this is his chapter on Bildad's second speech, Job 18, The Road to Hell. So I'm going to work uh, mostly from that, but I uh, today's is not a lesson. I have plenty to say. If you don't talk, I will fill up the time. This is not one of those times where I'm giving you the secret signal that I don't have enough to teach and I'm vamping and I need you to fill time. I have plenty to say and to teach, but this is a weighty, heavy, difficult concept, and so I anticipate that there uh, can be questions and that there can, especially clarifying uh, what does this mean? Uh, and so feel, feel free to raise those along the way. Ash begins this chapter by saying that Job 18 is an outstanding sermon on hell. That just has to make you chuck. You know, can you imagine you, you, you go to breakfast or coffee with somebody on Monday morning and you say, you know, I just heard the greatest sermon yesterday. Oh, yeah. What was it on? Hell. Oh, well, did you see that Georgia game? Did you? Uh, nobody really wants to hear an outstanding sermon on hell, but that's what this is in Job 18. And as we've said many times, I was talking with uh, Neil Stewart and with um, Kyle, the associate pastor at Christ Covenant, who just taught through Job or preached through Job 1. And so we were talking about the book a little bit and how the hardest part of teaching the book is how right Job's friends are. 99% of what they say is theologically accurate, and they just blow it all in the application and in the conclusion. And that's a tough thing as a teacher because everybody in the room knows Job's friends are not the good guys. These are, these are not the ones we're going to for wisdom in the book of Job, and yet so much of what they say is wise. And Job 18 is perhaps the, the quintessential example of that because it is, a, it, it is an amazing treatise or sermon, as he says, on the subject of hell. It's also just in the way that it's delivered, the way it's organized, structured, the, the rhetorical power of it, it's, it's a good sermon, <laughs> It's a well-done sermon, except for what many of us chuckle because it's what we've experienced in our lives, the application. (laughs) There are so many sermons where the content is true and you find yourself at the end saying, "Uh uh-huh, so what? 
And this one is even worse than that because the, the theological content is true and the application is bananas. It is just completely wrong. And it was good uh, affirming at least to read Ash say that the proper application of a sermon is perhaps the most difficult part to get right. Bildad gets this part horribly wrong. What introduces this topic is actually Job's response to the previous speech. And Job asked the question, how can I hope to live in the place of death? Job has, has made this case that he's very near to death. He knows he's going to die. It will be a murder when he dies. It will be unjust. And, and, and where can he go in that place of death? How can he hope to uh, endure with what's happening? And Bildad is opportunistic in his sermon, which is good. You want a preacher to be that way. You want a preacher to look at the audience, the congregation, and the questions that they're asking and to speak God's word in response. That's what preaching is supposed to be. And so he does that. Kudos to him for that. And Job says, where am I going? And Bildad says, oh, I know, I know. You're going to hell. (laughs) And then he goes into the sermon about hell. And it's a two-part sermon. First, he opens up the, what, what Ash calls the core issue. This is the first four verses of chapter 18. And you'll want, I didn't hand out slips because I'm not going to ask you to read, but if you have it available, you'll want chapter 18 around today. I'm going I'm to point out several things. But uh, the first four verses are the core issue. So this is what Ash has been calling the system, right? The idea that the world is organized in such a way that you get immediate benefit for good and immediate curse and consequence for bad. And that's what Ash has called the system. And that's the moral stability of the world. Job's friend's whole worldview is built on this idea of a persistent, evident, moral stability. And then the rest of the sermon, everything after that, is a description of the alternative, of the wicked place, of the devil's place, of hell. And the word place, or the concept of place is critical to this whole sermon. You think about Job, just ask, where am I going? Where is my place? And what Bildad is going to say is, that's a great question, Job, because everything in the world does have its place. Fagan and I are right. Everything has a proper place where it's supposed to go. And your place is hell. And the word place, look at verse 4, you see place. Verse 6, you see tent, 14, tent, 15, tent, 15, habitation, 17, street, 21, place. All of those words are cultivating this idea of place. There is a proper place for everything 
in the world. And that is the core issue. And that's where Bildad begins. That's the first four verses. Um, He accuses Job first. All of these back and forths have a little bit of insult and accusation. And so he accuses him of playing word games in verse uh, 2. But what's interesting about that, in verse 2, the accusation, he says, you or your, um, that is... Uh, you who tear yourself in anger. Those words are actually plural, not singular. And Bildad is talking about Job, but he's talking about Job as a kind of person. It's you people. This is a sermon about you people, which is, you guys know, is my favorite kind of sermon to give. It's about you people, and I don't have to think about it. So he challenges Job to come to his senses, that all of this whining, all of this complaining is not going to accomplish anything. Job has insulted his friends back in chapter 12. He uh, referred to them as cattle, essentially. And, and Bildad is asking in verse 3, do you think we're dumb? Do you think we're stupid cattle? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, and he's, he's, you know, again, if we're trying to think about what Bildad's role is supposed to be, is comforter. <laughs> and Job is tearing himself that he's about to die. He's about to be murdered. He tears his clothes. And, and it's as if Bildad stands over him, looking down and shaking his head and wagging his finger and says, what a giant temper tantrum. What a lot of drama. And he says, this isn't going to do you any good. This is dumb. At the end of verse 4, there's a creation order, Job. It cannot be disturbed. And so you can throw all of this temper tantrum that you want. It's not going to change anything. And the beginning of verse 4 is particularly insulting. Because remember, Job's response has been that he is being harmed, that he is the victim, and that God is the attacker. And Bildad says, no, this is self-harm. You're just hurting yourself. You're just doing all of this to yourself. Um, not comfort by any measure. In Bildad's view... Job has been challenging the system, the well-ordered nature of the world. And that is completely pointless. And Bildad uses language like what you're asking God to do is to move a mountain for you. You're asking him to change the nature of the universe just for your good. We've all had that experience, I think, of you're you're driving somewhere and the place you want to get is on the other side of a mountain. And you think, well, why didn't somebody just tunnel through this stupid thing and give me a straight path? Those of us who get car sick are very frustrated by the switchbacks. One of our best experience, my favorite experience in Hawaii was watching the sunset from the top of this 10,000 foot mountain peak where the clouds, I'll refer to it in the sermon as well, but the clouds are just below you. So you really get two sunsets. You get the sun setting below the clouds and then it reappears and you get it setting below the horizon. Uh, But the drive to get from the bottom of that mountain at 4,000 feet to the top of that mountain at 10,050 feet was an hour and 15 minutes. Now, some of that was stopping for cows, but it was a long drive. And you think to yourself, can't somebody just build a road that goes straight up? They can, but nobody could come down it and live. We want the world to change 
for us. And what Bildad is accusing Job of is you want the world to change for us. And this is dumb and it's not going to do any good. And so Bildad uses that word place at the end of verse four. And that's that's significant because in the system, in the universe in which uh, Job's friends imagine themselves to be. It's like Ash says, the tidy house in which everything not only has its place, but everything is in its place. And that's what they imagine of the world. It is a tidy world. Then, starting in verse 5, he talks about the place of the wicked in this tidy world. If this is the way the world is, this well-ordered, organized, moral stability, then what would be the place of the wicked? Which Bildad treats as if it was Job's question, because Bildad thinks Job is wicked, and Job says, where do I go? He says, well, the world's tidy, the world's organized, there's moral stability, so I will tell you where you go. And instead of wanting to remove the rock out of its place, as he said in verse 4, disrupting the creation order, reorienting the entire universe around Job, Bildad says, no, just let me come and show you where your place is. Let me show you where the wicked people dwell. And so he paints this picture of hell, and he does it in five stages. Renee, will you read verses 5 and 6? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. What's the theme of that? What does that tell us about hell? It's a place of total darkness. That hell is a place of total darkness. And when a person is wicked, he is destined for darkness. Now remember... The sermon is theologically true until we get to the part where we apply it to Job. So think about the way the Bible talks about sin, rebellion, unbelief. A people were walking in darkness. God is light and in him is no darkness. Right? This is the way the Bible talks about right and wrong, good and evil, God and hell. Is It is a place of darkness. Their eyes were closed. Their eyes were veiled. Right? This, this language that the further one removes themselves from God and his truth, the less they see. Isn't this what we see with the academics and the wise of this world. They think they know more and more and more. And yet what, what we can see through the light of God's word is that they're actually descending into darkness. And if they do not turn, if God does not pull them from that, show his light to them, they will end up in utter darkness, in total darkness. So Bildad says hell is the place of total darkness darkness. Andrew, read 7 through 10. Oh, hold on. Sorry. One more thing. This rhetorical thing I mentioned that Bildad is going to do happens uh, in every section and, and uh, Ash does a really good job of drawing attention to it, which is that the way Bildad describes these attributes, uh, let me just, it, Bildad um, 
At the end of his previous speech, Job spoke of Sheol as the place where he must make his bed in darkness. At the end of a previous speech, he spoke of having a one-way ticket to the land of darkness. Bildad agrees, but states that the only people who suffer this fate are the wicked. Quote, draw your own conclusions, Job. And that's what Bildad's going to do, is he describes hell... He's going to use language, categories of language that Job has used to describe his own experience. And then he's just going to kind of look at him and raise his eyebrows. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Uh, what does Monty Python say? A nudge is as good as a wink to a blind bat? I don't know what that means. All right. Total darkness. <laughs> Andrew, 7 through 10. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel, a snare lays hold of him, a rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. Alright, who can who can identify the theme of this section? What is this saying about hell? The metaphor is the trap, right? Six times. In 8 through 10, there is trap or a metaphor for trap. What, what is that saying about hell? What happens if you're in a trap? You can't escape. Hell is a place of inescapable punishment. Net, mesh, trap, snare, rope, noose, trap. Verse 7 uh, is the key. It's a man with strong steps, vigorous pride, I'm uh, sorry, vigorous strides, power and confident, a wicked man in prosperity. But as he walks along the way, those steps are shortened to a standstill. He will be trapped. His craftiness, his own schemes will trap him. Is that familiar at all from the Psalms? I mean, you hear that all the time in the Psalms. Let the wicked be caught in their own snares. What is the rope? I thought that may be a way out. But... <clears throat> no, it's like you're tied up. It's okay. caught your caught your heel, so you can't move. Um, it's the uh, 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 Swiss Family Robinson booby traps that the kids have laid out across the island. <laughs> you're thinking it was a rope that was dropped down. So yeah, to, as a, something that gives you help. Yeah. <laughs> That's wishful thinking, Nick. Uh, inescapable punishment and it's this is terrifying language and it's going to be this way in the sermon and in God's providence these two texts and themes came together I didn't plan it this way but it's just the way the Bible talks and it's so consistent with the way we would use analogies and metaphors to think about what sin does and what wickedness does that it is a trap it is a snare in the in the book of Revelation where it talks about the harlot's cup and you taste it and it tastes good and you think it's refreshing but it's actually making you more thirsty and you keep drinking and you realize you don't like it anymore and you don't want anymore but you keep drinking and you keep drinking and then you're down to the dregs the disgusting part of the cup and you can't stop drinking. That's the metaphor of hell. It is inescapable. And sin itself is inescapable apart from God's intervention. It just looks so appealing. It it just, that's why sin as a trap is such an important metaphor because it looks 
so appealing. It tells us so many lies about what we will be and what we will feel and what we will have and what we will gain. It offers you the world. It is Satan offering Jesus the kingdoms of the earth. But if you, if you zoom out from the emotion of that moment, the temptation of the moment, that's a ridiculous offer, right? It would be absolutely absurd for Jesus to take Satan's offer. I get to be the kingdoms of, of, of this. I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm the king of all creation. You want me to trade that for this? And yet... Every single person in this room makes a calculation every day when the tempter comes and says, Hey, look, you can have this. And we say, Oh, okay. That sounds pretty good. I mean, I got to give up some fellowship and union with Christ for it, but, you know, seems pretty good. We make that stupid, short-sighted trade every time we sin. And were God not to intervene... Satan has laid, those are traps for us. Those are the snares of the devil, as the New Testament calls them. And they lead to hell, which is inescapable in its punishment. And Bildad gives this sermon, and then he looks at Job. You drawing any conclusions, Job? You You say you can't get away from this punishment? You say that your suffering won't stop? Yeah, there's a reason. All right, uh, Jake, oh, you don't have numbers. <laughs> it's verse 11, terrors frighten, and it ends with king of terrors. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. All right, you don't have to be a genius to figure out what this section's about since it starts with the word and it ends with the word. How is the place of insatiable terror? Terror. This is, for some of us, just depending on how you're wired, different ones of these will strike you differently. For some of us, this is the worst of the worst. Um, but you can sort of imagine, not that you want it or anticipate, but like this idea of sort of ongoing physical pain. Okay, I have a category for that. Ongoing mental, emotional, spiritual terror. It never stops. It never relents. It never feels better for one second than it did the second before or the second after. This uh, section is filled with overtones of the demonic. This is evil spirits bringing the fear of death and hell into human hearts. Job has said, the terrors of God are arrayed against me. He said that back in chapter 6. And Bildad says, yep. And what conclusion do you draw from that, Job? Um, He is describing hell. He is describing where the, the state in which one finds themselves when they are utterly and eternally separated from the love of God and Christ. And it is terrifying. It's funny, you, you, of all the things media try to depict and do so in silly ways. I mean, you think about 
you know, TV shows, dramas, and sitcoms and things, and often they'll make an attempt at depicting heaven, you know, the good place is all about that, and, and, and we kind of chuckle at how far they're missing the mark on those descriptions. Hell's the one they can't come anywhere close. The scariest movie you've ever seen and the scariest moment you could ever see it, if while you were watching it, a man jumped through your window with a chainsaw and started to cut you to pieces, is not scary enough. Um, the closest, uh, if you've ever read the book, we read it in book club several years ago, Silence, about um, some of the martyrs, Japanese martyrs. Um, some of the descriptions of the, the torture that martyrs have endured, not just them, but the saints throughout history, you know, you start, you get a, a momentary taste of it. But now endure that torture in utter hopelessness with no escape. That's what Bill Dad's describing. It is, it is absolutely terrifying. And the sermon is going to be about is that really what God's going to do? <laughs> Could God really do that? Uh, spoiler, the answer is yes. He has to. Uh, all right. Uh, Crystal, can you read 15 and 16? In his tent dwells that which is none of his, sulfur scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath, and his branches wither above. All right, this one's a little tougher just in terms of, of, of figuring out what he's talking about. Um, in his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur scattered over his habitation. So no sense of family, no sense of home, no sense of place. His roots dry up beneath, his branches wither above. No sense of self. Hell is a place, I like the way that Ash words it, of total dissolution. What does that mean? The, the dissolution of self. I think a better translation of the Hebrew word at the beginning of verse 15, uh, I agree with Ash, is, is fire resides in his tent. Because fire is a good metaphor for us. When we think of fire, utterly consumes something. It burns something up. What is left behind is nothing of what was left before. If you, if you picked up the... the Uh, the pile of ashes after your house had burned down, you would not say, in this is the essence of my home. (laughs) You you would see it has become something else. What it was is gone. And hell is a place of the the dissolution of self. Fire, Ash says, dissolves all, all the organic matter. And hell dissolves the, the orderings of life, what sustains life, what identifies life. Now, this is not annihilationism. We wish there were annihilationism, that hell is something that people experience for a millisecond and then they cease to exist and it's all gone. No, we've been given several uh, points already that this is a, an everlasting, uh, inescapable terror and judgment. The the dissolution of self is not about you cease it's not about you cease to exist, it's about you cease to exist. There's nothing of you, your concept of self, your hopes, your dreams, your desires, your knowledge, your skill, your wisdom, your strength, your family, your love, your gone. 
all gone. You're fully aware of what you're experiencing. In fact, you're aware of the absence of this loss. That's a tough one. I mean, just that, that seems next level punitive. It kind of makes you realize why the Jews were so, had so many laws and so many things going on. <laughs> why they're trying to keep people from, yeah. 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 I mean, with this kind of sense of reality. If you, try to, if you try to be sympathetic to it, and I'll say this in the sermon, yeah. You, you, if you really believe this, you think and behave differently. Yeah. No one can believe this and be unchanged. There are lots who hear this and do not believe it. Yeah. There are lots who hear this, say they believe it, and reveal by the way that they live that they do not believe it. But you cannot believe this and not be changed. Kathy, can you read 17 through 20? memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They of the West were appalled in his day, are appalled at his day, and horror seizes them of the East. So the last one is that loss of sense of self. This one is the loss of legacy, reputation, other people's knowledge, remembrance, awareness of what you are. Ash says the wicked are a blot on the landscape. They will and must be taken to another place and this will be complete. Not a speck of their dust will be left behind. Um, He says this is, I think, one of the most powerful things Ash says in this chapter. The paradox of hell is that it is the place that is not a place. It is a place with no stability, no center, no location in the universe. The new heavens and the new earth will have no place for hell. It will be, in an absolute sense, outside of reality. I don't know. I can imagine you have questions to that that I don't have the answer to. <laughs> but he's right. Well, what does that mean for? I, I'm not sure. Yeah, but what, how does that? I, I, I don't know. But he's right. Because what we live in is the, the, the probationary, temporary world that groans under the curse because so many things are out of place. When the new creation comes and there's the judgment on the last day and he says, depart from me and he sends them out to the place of lake and fire. He's sending them out of the new creation, out of the new reality. Not like out of the South and having to go live with the Yankees or the Californians. It's not like they're going to be over there in hell. (laughs) See what I did there? We love you. (laughs) You're here now. It's all okay. (laughs) He's sending them out of reality. He's sending them out of what will then be the world that Job's friends think is now. The the, the universe that does align in every way 
with the nature of God. There's not... Is it Lewis who said there's not one maverick molecule in the universe? Everything gets attributed to Lewis. Sproul. 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 There's not one maverick molecule in the universe. That means God's sovereign over every single thing that's happening in this world. But not every single thing that's happening in this world reflects the character of God. That's not carefully said. Let me, I could put a million footnotes on that. For the purpose of this conversation, though, um, everything that is in the new heavens and the new earth, you will be able to mentally draw a line very easily between why that is the way it is and who God is. Right now, that is also true and possible. It's a zigzag that is very hard for human minds because there's just too much we don't see and too much we don't know and too much of it is taking place through the sin and the wickedness and the curse of those who rebel against his kingdom. That's what I mean. Not that it won't reflect the same, but that it will be so much easier then. It's a straight line from what we see, what we experience, what we feel to God's character. Because right now we have the filter of sin and, and the fall, and, yeah. and there we won. He has chosen for the purposes of his glory that for a time his universe will be governed through unholy means. Not exclusively unholy means, but through some unholy means. Not his doing, but his purposes. And in the new heavens and the new earth, that goes away. <clears throat> He will be fully glorified. You know, he was fully glorified in creation. He's fully glorified in his response to the fall. His holiness is vindicated when he brings death upon creation for what they've done. He's fully glorified and vindicated in the resurrection of Christ. And that's just this huge billboard of God is fully glorified in all that he does. And he will be fully glorified Again, in a different way, in the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth. And that era of human history, he will not be glorified through forgiveness, because there will be no need for any. Resurrection, because there will be no need for any. uh, it It is difficult to contemplate how different that will be. When you said the word it will be a different reality, the verse that popped up in my mind is the end of 1 Corinthians 13. Mm-hmm. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. It's such a good both and in that passage because it is a it is a different reality. I just said it's unimaginably different from this world. And yet it's it's not categorically different because we have it in part today. It will be the perfect completion and fulfillment of what we have in part today. It just happens to be that the the sin gap, the sin filter, the curse filter is so dramatic, so all-encompassing, so impactful, that when we see this world without that filter or the need for it, it'll seem like a totally different thing. (laughs) In some ways. 
And so our, our views of heaven and what the new earth will be uh, are rarely accurate. <laughs> what will it be like? It'll be exactly like this. Sunday morning, God's people gather together. Fellowship, worship, love, friendship, pursuit of knowledge and truth, glory, joy, laughter. It'll be exactly like this except without any sin. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> so how will it be exactly like this? Yeah. <laughs> right. Of the zigzags you talk about, that's where all of our pain is. Oh. And so going from a straight line and not having to go through the pain, like that in itself just seems really, really great. <laughs> the zigzag is where we feel the... All the questions... All the questions. So we don't become omniscient in the new heavens and the new earth. Everybody gets that, right? It's not like we get our glorified bodies and we know everything. No, no, no. We still grow and learn. and we. So all of our questions about the nature of God will come from joyous curiosity and delighted praise. And none of them will come from pain and confusion. Yeah, because I'm make up a number. 86% of our questions about God in this life come from pain and confusion. Occasionally, we get the other. I was standing on top of that mountain in Hawaii. And I said, what kind of God makes this? He, he didn't have to make any of this. He, he, he didn't have to make any of it. He could have made a, a grayscale, slightly dimmed, boring, we all eat tofu. <laughs> and he made <laughs> and he made this. That's the place of genuine curiosity and praise and delight in God. That is far too rare, my approach to God in this life. Far more often, my question is, what kind of God allows this? Oh God, what are you doing through this? How long, oh Lord? Those questions will never be asked. Um, Yeah, it's an astonishing contrast. So then he concludes in verse 21... Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. So you see what he did there? He takes all of Job's previous speeches where Job is asked these questions out of his pain and out of his hurt and out of his genuine confusion. And Job has set up these categories of darkness and of feeling trapped and to feel like he's losing his self and his sense of identity, of losing his family and his home and his reputation. Job uses all these categories to describe what he's experiencing. And Bill Dad says, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, that's how you feel, okay, that's how you feel. All right, let me tell you about hell. Hell's a place where A, B, C, D, E. Okay, what? Oh, and you know who goes to hell? The unrighteous. Is such is the place, your place, Job, the place you've been describing for all these chapters, the place where you feel like you are, your place is the place of him who knows not God. So what do you think about that, Job? Bildad is absolutely right about hell. It's the, it's the most clear and detailed description of hell we have in the whole Bible. Is this 
this sermon in chapter 18. And Bildad and his friends, the system is right that the, the universe is an ordered place. That's the difference, the, the word cosmos versus the word chaos. We live in a cosmos, a created orderly thing, a purposeful thing, not chaos. Hell is all the things that Bildad says it is. I'm quoting Ash here. Just go through the book. So where does Bildad go wrong? He goes wrong because Job is not wicked. You remember that? You remember? How does this book begin? Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse... uh, Chapter 1... Chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 3. Job is a blameless man. (laughs) That's the point. A blameless... An upright man. Bildad and his friends, the system thinks, cannot be in a place like this. Can't happen. Orderly world, neat and tidy house, everything in its place, the good things go over here, the bad things go over there. You can look at where you are, and where you are describes what you are. And scripture says, nope, not now. Not now, because this blameless and upright believer is enduring the torments of hell in this life. We know it's not eternal. We know it's not spiritual hell. But all the earthly equivalent analogies are there. He's in darkness. He's in pain. He's trapped. He can't escape. His sense of self is gone. His entire community has abandoned him. What's the difference? The difference is the timeline. <laughs> That's not real comforting in the moment. <laughs> Don't worry, you're only going to be in hell eight years. Oh, well, yeah, you can do anything for eight years. <laughs> That's, yeah. Yeah. So, um, in thinking about my own experience, this is very, you know, this is how similar to how I felt in, in college, but not every believer needs to go through the depth of what's described here in order to come to Christ. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and remember, Job is in Christ prior to this. This is not happening so that Job will come to Christ. This is happening because we live in a cursed and sin-stained world. Now, we know why Job specifically is happening. Because the glory of God was challenged by Satan. And Satan said, nobody loves you when their life is bad. The only reason people love you is you give them good stuff. That's a pretty significant challenge to the glory of God. Because if that's true, God is not intrinsically lovable. That's the challenge of Satan here. Is that if what Satan says about Job is true, God is not lovable just because he's God. Nobody follows and serves God just because he's God. They follow and serve God because he's got floor side seats at the Lakers. (laughs) And that challenge was made by Satan to God in the presence of the heavenly host. And for our benefit, God goes through all of this with Job. 
records all of this in Scripture so that when we consider the accusation, why follow God? Why love God? Well, as long as he's giving me good stuff, I'm giving good stuff. And when Satan says to you, the only reason you follow God is because your life is okay right now. You can say to yourself, no, 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 no. I follow God because God has given me faith. <laughs> I never want this. You've tasted this, he said. I know several of you in this room have tasted this. Nobody wants this. And you would beg God to test and strengthen your faith in other ways. <laughs> and that is a reasonable request. <laughs> But among all the other purposes, first and foremost, his glory, he is driving you, he is leaving you with nothing left but him. That'll be, it's what Isaiah, going through all this list of nations and empires of history, everybody needs to be saved at some point. Everybody needs to be saved. Spiritual salvation, of course, but also just in life, everybody needs to be saved from something. There's always the Babylonians coming over the wall, right? right? Everybody has moments in life where they're looking for salvation, and the question of life is, where will you turn? And as Dale Stapler likes to say, there's God, and everything else is not God. <laughs> and we spend a bunch of time turning to not God. And how gracious, hurtful, painful, I'm not disputing any of that. How gracious is God? That when we turn to not God, so many times, he does not put us in this inescapable torment of hell immediately. He takes away our not God and says, now will you turn? Oh, I have this other not God over here. <laughs> and he takes that one away. Oh. And he takes that one away. How gracious is God? So much of the depth of our devastating pain. Not always. This God does painful things for all sorts of reasons. I'm giving one example uh, is God taking away our not gods, taking away our comfort with not gods, the casualness with which we think salvation is, is a box that's been checked, that's been dealt with. Now I'm going to go on and live the rest of my life the way I want to live the rest of my life with my not gods, and I'll be fine because I know that God says, You are not fine. Do I need to remind you you're not fine? Do I need to? Uh, now, not all suffering is that. We're not going to be Job's friends and look at somebody's suffering and say, this is exactly what God was doing in you. He's strengthening your faith because your faith was weak. No. Sometimes your faith was so incredibly super strong that God did this to you because I needed to see the strength of your faith. Your faith didn't change one ounce, but I needed to see it. And it changed my faith. Changed my, wait, God does all kinds of things for purposes. That's helpful evangelistically. Just a quick comment on that. Because you're not trying to get one response out of somebody, right? You're not right. trying to sinners in the hands of an angry God, everybody, all the time. And, and uh, I got to tell you, I, I, so, so many of us grew up in uh, sort of Baptistic, charismatic circles, right? We were, we're coming up on Halloween. We were joking recently about the hell house many of our churches had, which is now like, you read this, and you think about what we were doing down there. Like, the fact that God was gracious not to just strike us dead with lightning in the moment, for that's actually a violation of the third commandment, uh, hell houses are. They're, they're incorrect representations of attributes of God. Uh, his wrath is mocked 
by the hell house. How about that as a, as a legalistic approach to the third commandment? Uh, read the larger catechism sometime. It'll, it'll shock you. No, it's not that there's anything wrong with telling people about hell. We have to tell people about hell. It's that we, can't, we don't do a good enough job when we make it trivial. When we, when we make it a, a Freddy Krueger scary house that people should just walk through and laugh and have giggles at the end, we've blasphemed the name of God. Um, and when, and when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, <sighs> yeah. he wasn't saying... You know, I only got I only got I only got to do this for three days. Like it's only a three day gig. Yeah. I mean, this is doable. Like he wasn't saying that. He was saying, I am casting myself on the mercy of my father. And I am On the cross, he cries out with such agony. Again, you talk about something that, that Passion plays just can't capture, and that movies and TV shows just can't capture. That's why I don't watch them, you guys. It's not, it's not some legalistic, you know, I, I think you're going to go to hell because you watch a, a, a TV show where somebody is dressed up like Jesus. It's, it's that I find them to be stunningly insufficient. Christ yells out in such agony on the cross, quoting David, that God, his father, has forsaken him. David thought God had forsaken him. David felt the way you felt. Where David, and it's, and it's real, and it's a real emotion. But the gulf between what David was going through in the deepest depths of his agony and what Jesus actually experienced when he said, Why have you forsaken me? Breathed out his last. And the whole world goes, What? Dark. <laughs> that is, that's real. That's not... It's not minimizing our pain. That's what Job's friends do to Job. Job's pain should not be minimized. The only sense in which I can minimize Job's experience of hell is when I contrast it to what Christ experienced on the cross. Christ ultimately fulfilling what Job shadowed. (laughs) That, and, and even though time, we're on the other side of the cross, what you feel in that deepest, deepest depths of agony, it's not, it's not fake, it's real. You're really experiencing something. Our comfort is that the extreme end of that, the worst it could possibly be, the inescapable, everlasting darkness, torment, sense of self, the, the your darkest thing, forever 50 times darker, the place that you can't even articulate or think how badly you fear that it will go from this to that, Christ did that so that you never have to. That's why when we're in the shadow of that horrific reality, we cry out in pain, we cry out, why have you forsaken me? And yet we have this teeny, teeny, Job has it. Job has it. It comes out every now and then. It's about to in the most awesome chapter in all of Job. I know that my Redeemer lives. 